Well, um, let's all stand and let's give a hand to God for the word this morning. And Pastor Timothy will be sharing for us. Hand you over. One last shout for God, yeah? Ready? Ready? Let's do it together. Let's do it together, though. One, two, three. Woo! Thank you, Lord. Woo! Awesome. Grab a seat and let me pray for you. God, oh, we love you, God. We love being here in this representative of your house, Father, this representative of heaven and our hope, Father, here in your church. And Lord, we just thank you that we can call you our family, God. We can call you our Father, Lord. And we just, uh, we come with humble hearts before you today, Father, to learn from you, Father, and every word you've spoken. And we know that it won't just stay words, Father, but that it might spring to life in us. Amen. There was a time when not one righteous man could be found in the whole world. Not one. Mankind, having been exiled from God and our home in Eden, banded together in rebellion to form a jack-in-the-beanstalk-esque tower up to the heavens with the hope of invading heaven. God couldn't stop us. He couldn't keep us out from his riches, from his glory. We were going to go up to him. We were going to invade heaven. And God lovingly frustrated our efforts. He scattered us into languages and into cultures. But refusing to learn, mankind turned our effort then from objectified idolatry to what might be the earliest example of genetic engineering. And the Bible, in fact, says that man and angel became married together. They intermarried with one another. And they began producing hybrid abominations in the eyes of God. Talking about the weird sections of the Bible, people. <laughs> Talking about the things you don't normally hear on a Sunday, right? Again, God was forced to play the role of righteous judge instead of loving father. And he further reduced man's lifespan to 120 years. Have I sufficiently set the context of early mankind for you? Of not one righteous man amongst them? Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the heart, of the human heart, was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings, and his heart was deeply troubled. You know, I love God more than anything, more than anything. And it hurts me to think that I hurt God. It hurts me. 
every thought of my heart evil all the time. Imagine for a second that someone that looks exactly like you went around and began destroying all your plans, pretending to be you, hurting every person you know, and generally setting your whole life on fire. Just imagine that for one second. Because Genesis tells us that God created mankind to be a vessel that would contain his ruach, his breath of life, his spirit, his image. So when this creation looks at man, we don't think there goes an animal, there goes a tree, there goes a mountain, do we? We think, why is man strange amongst creation? Why are we somehow seeming to be like a ruler amongst these things? Because we contain a God-likeness. And yet in the image of God, the way that we've corrupted things, the way we've sullied that image, right? Right? See, our meaning and purpose is intended to be defined in relationship to God. That's the key. I could stop preaching now. That's plenty. Go meditate on that. But see, what happens is, and you might notice it more and more in today's society, is that we try and tear back our identity. Don't we? We try and tear back our gender, our race, our personality, our sexuality. We tear it back. And we break it in the process. We were not meant to own these things. They're meant to be defined in relationship to our Creator, to God. And so what happens when we try and take back our identity? We were designed to be made in the image of God. So when we try and remake our image, whose image do you think it ends up being in? <sighs> a deception. If it's not God, it's a deception. And we have corrupted God's image, and yet all of ourselves call ourselves, you know, he's a good guy. But in order for him to be good, in order for me to be good, I need to condemn the goodness of God. Because they can't both be good. It's not subjective. It's not plural truth. We're talking here about morality. Now, a morality that is plural, a goodness that is plural, is no morality at all. It's not. You lose it. And so we're faced with this conundrum that we are moral beings that are refusing to acknowledge the goodness of God. <laughs> refusing to define ourselves in relationship to that. Genesis 6.8 But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Interesting fact, not one of us would be here today if it wasn't for this man. This is our blood. See, you've got his eyes. I've got his beard. 
Ash has his robe. <laughs> First man in the Bible to be described as righteous by his faith. Man, what a privilege. Next level stuff. Noah was the only one. The only one. How lonely must that have been? How lonely for him? And how lucky for us? See, to w- I, I was thinking about this. To what could you compare Noah's singular and solitary faith? Like a lifeboat in the middle of a desert with no ocean in sight. Genesis 6:17 God confides in his righteous man Noah, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it. So make yourself an ark. Bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female. And every kind of food that is to be eaten. I'm paraphrasing that, by the way. Imagine receiving that message. Just one second. Imagine you were Noah. Every person you've ever known, your entire class at school, babies, animals, plants, the end of the world. I started thinking when I was reading that, why do the plants and animals have to get thrown in <laughs> with the sins of man? And yet they do. Genesis 1, 28 to 29 tells us God made us as a ruler over these things. I don't, I don't generally dwell on my responsibility as a steward to this world. I don't think about it too often. Maybe when, I, when it comes to putting out the recycling, you know, <laughs> that's when I think about it. But here we see that all of creation suffers for us, suffers for our sin. I think that's a, that's a weird concept, you know? It's a lot of responsibility there. You know, in, it says, In holy fear Noah heeded this warning. And although his name means rest, Noah now becomes trivocational. <laughs> We've heard the expression of a bivocational pastor, and we, we pity the fool. <laughs> Trivocational. The Bible calls Noah a man of the soil, meaning farmer. It precedes him planting crops, a farmer. And then now he's commissioned to make probably the largest boat of his day with a very small crew. And then 2 Peter 5.25 says he preached righteousness on top of all of this. So turn or burn, or perhaps better put, uh, float or bloat is my appropriation. Same sermon. For 50 years it took him to build this ark around that. They say between 50 and 100 years to build this thing. Large portion. Some of us here, we're not even 50 years old. That's every single day of your life building this thing out of faith. 
the same sermon. Casting pearls before swine. Five posts a day on Facebook. Fired from Rugby Australia for discrimination. (sighs) What a hard life for this guy. The sheer faith and determination, right? Don't you love this guy? What a man. What a crazy man. <laughs> Genesis 6:22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And this it was so specific the commands as well. Genesis 7:5, again reiterating his obedience and his faith, and Noah did all the Lord commanded him. Oh my goodness. Put that on my tombstone, someone. Hebrews 1.17. Here's something a bit more challenging for you. And by Noah's faith, he condemned the world. Fair enough, people didn't listen to Noah. His words, even his actions. I get it, you know. I understand that the lives of the believers look crazy. The fact that you are here today is crazy to someone, to a lot of someones. I get it, you know. But the thing that I can't understand and the thing that every apocalypse movie that I've ever watched has taught me is that you always follow the animals. Right? Like, fair enough, you didn't listen to Noah or his actions. But when the animals, the wild animals, start marching two by two onto the ark, you think some people might have started paying attention. Unless, could it be that we are so blind? We are so hard-hearted to God. You know, half the time, God doesn't even ask us to understand. He doesn't say that. He just says, taste and see. Just give it a try. Just take a step on. I think, uh, when I think about it for a second... I think if God could click his fingers and kill all the sinners in a moment, why did he put Noah through such hardship? Why the spectacle of this giant boat in the middle of nowhere? Unless, and here's a radical thought for you, unless God never wanted to drown us, what if, God wants to save us. So busy getting offended at being called a sinner, getting offended at this concept of hell, and not wondering that why God would even talk about such things unless his heart was to save you. To save you. Genesis 6, 22. Oh, Sorry. I haven't got the scripture here, but I can tell you this. Noah had completed the ark. The animals were all loaded on. Everything was set to go. And God went one step further still. And he gave seven days from them just waiting, just idling. 
in the hope that someone, anyone, might come on board and be saved. Not one person, not one person came. I feel like that story, that moment, those seven days, they tragically reinforce God's justice in this moment. The hopelessness of those people and the travesty of what's coming next. Genesis 7, 11. All the springs of the great deep burst forth. All the floodgates of heaven were open and rain fell on the earth. Now, did you know that it is commonly believed that this is the first time that rain ever happened? Did you know that? Oh, good. Don't need to preach it then. <laughs> they say in Genesis 2, 5 to 6, it suggests that it used, mist used to irrigate the earth so that it wasn't precipitation, it wasn't rain, it was a mist, kind of like this morning. Now, imagine that you've never seen rain before, for one second. To what would you compare it? I, I would compare it to the heavens cry, crying. To the heavens crying. And what a dreadfully poetic image that the heavens would cry at God's unmaking of his good creation, of his judgment of the people made to bear his image. And you know, it was probably somewhere around the point that all the waters started being released and rising up that Noah began to realize the flaw in God's unsinkable ark the door in the side, the 15 meter high, one ton door. Him and his sons, Shem, Ham and Canaan, I think it was, they would have been out there, you know, one ton, how are you going to do this? And then I can just imagine them in that doorway dropping to their knees in hopelessness, in desperation, in prayer. And then, boom, God closed the door. God shut them in, is what it says. I find that scripture terrifying. No electricity. No Wi-Fi signal. The screams... the creaking of that timber as it fights to hold itself together. Now, I don't want to dwell on this point for too long, but here's what I want to tell you that prophetically this is talking about here. You never get to shut the door on the lost. Never. It's a God-sized door. It was not a design flaw. It was yet another symbol of God's grace. God will shut the door, not you. Genesis 7, 17. 
For 40 days, the flood kept coming. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. All the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. I'm talking Everest-level flood. Waters in excess of 8,850 meters above the surface of the world. That's a lot of water. Mankind had become a stranger amongst creation. The creation that we were going to rule, the garden that we were going to tend, the earth that we'd been created for, we'd become a stranger. Why? Because we had made God a stranger in our hearts. That's why. Now, God promised to flood the earth and to save Noah, but he never promised to restore it again. All God's eggs in one casket, baby Moses in a basket, Jonah in a fish, Daniel in a den, Jesus in a tomb. And that's where the story ends. We're still on the boat. Thanks for listening. All right, see you later. Want to hear the rest? God never just ends it like that, does he? So where were we? Phew. Noah was alive. But phew, what was that smell? As if Noah's life hadn't been hard enough already, he's now a glorified janitor on a floating zoo. His whole life at this point is poo management. He's getting a really good insight into how God must feel with us, right? <laughs> Glorified janitor. 150 days they lived in this stinky, lifeless water world. And then something amazing happened. What happened? The bird? Oh, we're not there yet. Don't jump ahead. Yeah, the rain stopped and God sent something. Pop quiz. No, not quite yet. We're almost there. We'll get there. We'll get there. God sent something that's very helpful when you've got a stink. A wind. God sent a wind. And it wasn't just any old wind. It was what we call the Ruach that I talked about earlier. The breath of life, that spirit that we were designed to contain, he sent it. He'd unmade the world. If you think about it, he'd taken creation back to the second day when he separated the heavens and the waters. Do you know, the Bible even suggests that God put a stop to the seasons. Because later on he addresses that and he says, I'll never do that again. So he had unmade his creation all bar one boat full of life. And his spirit for the next 150 days set about recreating, pushing those waters back, setting things back in order, recreating the world for us. A new earth. Isn't that exciting? God, I'm ready for a new one. <laughs> Who's ready for a new one now? Anyone? <laughs> uh, 
And for the next 150 days, it said about its business. And here, let me tell you, God might have never promised to restore the earth to Noah, but that cheeky Noah, for all of his obedience and his carefully, meticulously uh, following God's plans in building the ark, that cheeky Noah had put something in the ark just for him. A secret window. A secret window. Now, why would Noah put a window if there was nothing to see? There was no, no hope. See, that window, that sneaky window, it's really important here. Because what that window does is it tells us that Noah knew God. He knew Him. He didn't need to know that God was going to restore the earth because he already knew the goodness of Him. Even though God had told him he was going to do perhaps the most horrific thing that God has done in human history, Noah was banking on the goodness of him. And he put in a little cheeky window. And someone mentioned the dove, and you know, he excitedly flung open his window. The rain had stopped. The ruach was floating around, fixing stuff up. He flung open his window, and he flung out a dove. Isn't that cool? What a great image. I'm not going to go through the the complete story there, but I like to think that it's the same dove that landed on Jesus during his own baptism some 3,000 years later. But that's impossible, isn't it? But I like to think it. (laughs) Do you like to read the Bible creatively, you know? There's not enough time travel, you know. You've got to add a bit of time travel. So, but speaking of impossible, the dove eventually returns to Noah with a freshly plucked olive leaf. Doesn't that sound nice? Everyone say, freshly plucked. Yeah, that sounds good. Freshly plucked olive leaf. And... Do you know, this is, this is kind of impossible. As I was thinking about this, and I was really thinking about this, this is kind of impossible. All my research suggests to me that if the world was covered, for one year it was covered with water, that every tree and even every seed would drown. That's what my research tells me. So where's the tree from? Where's the tree from? (laughs) Ask the dove. (laughs) Where's the tree from? You know, they say that Noah would have got out and the land would be barren. That the land would be but soil and bones from the death. And yet that doesn't sound like God, does it? He unmade it. He can remake it, right? We're talking here about resurrection. I'm banking on it. I'm banking on resurrection. I'm banking my whole life on it. I've got to tell you, for all Noah's faith, I believe that he, he was still traumatized by the flood. I find it very telling that even after all of the water subsided, the Bible tells us that the animals, Noah and his family that were saved, that they remained in the ark for one month, even after all the water was gone. Why would they do that? They're traumatized. 
They've just seen everybody they know die. They've just seen the God, the good God that they trust, kill everyone. They're scared. You know, that, that ark had been the thing that saved them and they'd come maybe to rely on that ark instead of on God. You know, so can I tell you this? This church that we build up the kingdom of God, you know, in that moment on the world, the ark represented life, represented the kingdom of God. And sometimes we get so busy building up the church that we forget. We think we start worshiping it. We think it's safety. We think the life's in the ark. Not true. God said to them, go out again. Don't be scared. Be fruitful and multiply. Now's the time. He literally had to evict them from the ark in Genesis 8:16. He kicked them out. They may have had no intention of ever leaving. I don't know. But let me restore to you Noah's character. Because his first action on dry land was to build an altar to God. And to sacrifice some of the clean animals. Now I want to tell you, you need to remember here with this sacrifice, that there was only a couple of each kind of animal. And so that this sacrifice cost big. And there was no Mosaic law that told Noah to build an altar. This is a man that had studied God's heart, that had studied his nature, that had heard the stories of Cain and Abel and what the kind of things that God likes. He loved God. He wanted to show his love for him. He was trying to give him something that he knew that he would like. And after all of that sacrifice, Noah already laying down his life, the flood already sacrificing all of mankind, and yet it was this last sacrifice that tipped over God's heart. It broke God's heart. And he did something he'd never done before, another new thing called a covenant to give to mankind. And he said, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. In Genesis 9, 6, God then goes on to warn, but I will demand an account for every animal and every human being, and whoever sheds human blood by human humans shall have their blood shed. Now hold up. The last part. What about, what about that last part, God? Didn't you just murder the entire human and animal race? And you're saying you're going to hold us to account? You know, a condemner might think such a God is egotistical and hateful. That is to say that we might try and nail our sinful nature onto him. And yet to the condemner, we with the retrospect of history can say, God did become that man, Jesus. God did allow his blood to be shed by man. Not under obligation, no way, but so that no one can ever deny 
that God's intention is to save, is to save. It's to save. So now that we have no question, now that we've put all our blame onto God, or now that the, condemn, the condemnation is dead and buried, and all what is resurrected is the true heart of God, that freshly plucked leaf, then the only question is, what's stopping you? What's stopping us from stepping on that boat? What's stopping us from stepping out into the world that God desires to recreate? And lastly, I want to say that as a gesture of this newly instituted covenant, God gives man a symbol in the sky for all to see. A symbol of this invisible God. Genesis 9.14 Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the sky, I will remember my covenant between you and all living creatures of every kind. The truth of God is not the lightning bolt of punishment that sin necessitates. It's the beauty and hope of the rainbow, the setting aside of His righteous anger. It's the marrying together of God and man, light and water. But I think to myself, when I think of today's context, I think to myself of what the rainbow has become. I think to myself about what the story of Noah has become. I read to my children the story, the happy story of Noah, who had a a party on a boat with animals. It's all smiles. And I say to myself, how can I, how can I celebrate when there's still bodies floating all around me. This is the explicit version of the Noah story. It's not by watering down the gospel that will only drown us in sin. It's not by hiding in the ark when God desires for us to remake a broken world. Maybe instead it's by allowing that law of God, that light of God that shoots through the darkness to come in and through us. It's when the light of God comes in and through us, you know, we become like walking rainbows. I'm serious. That sounds really corny, but I'm serious. It's beautiful. When I see someone in their suffering, when I see someone with the strength of God in them, it's beautiful. It's nothing like it. Transcends humanity. That's what I'm talking about. That's the sign of grace. That's the symbol of grace. I'll get you to stand to your feet. The rainbow is a symbol of humility and grace, not of pride and acceptance. Did you hear what I said just then? 
I'm going to say it again because the world is going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing you, something, a different message. The rainbow that God created is a symbol of humility and grace, not of pride and acceptance. We do not accept sin. Uh Uh-uh. It's the paradox of the gospel, guys, that our salvation denotes another person's condemnation. And yes, we are all sinners, but we don't have to stay that way. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Because while I'm here and talking about God wanting to save us from tragedy and travesty and the brokenness of our lives, I'd be a fool if I didn't say to you that today there's a God that desires to save you. That all you've got to do is take a step and taste and see. And I'm asking you today if anyone wants to take that step. Just flick your hand up if you want to take the step. You won't regret it, I'm telling you. All right, church, what I want to do is I want to pray for you because I've got to tell you that the ideologies of this world remind me of the time of Noah. And I want to pray for you and strengthen you that you, with the boldness of Noah, can continue to preach the word, can continue to usher that warning in love and hope that we might save the lost. Let me pray for you. Father, I just thank you, God, that you are our rainbow, Father, that you are our light, God, that we know that you never intended to hurt us, but to bring us good, Father, to love us, to restore this world. Lord, I pray that we might partner with you as as Noah in faith to preach your word. Step out boldly. Reach into our hearts, God, and correct anything that's in the play, any pride or any acceptance of this sinful world, God, and challenge us on us, God. Teach us about your grace and humility. Amen. Let's praise God, church.